Morning, fellow laborers, partners in ministry, friends, missionaries, and those who have come uh, to visit us from ministering all over different locations in the world. We are very excited to be here with you today and have you with us uh, this morning. Uh, A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to read a biography that was very, very impactful to me. Every once in a while, we read the work of someone that God has called into missions someplace else in the world, and it inspires us, and it motivates us. And I remember years ago, when I read the biography of John Patton, how motivating it was to me. And, and there's an abbreviated uh, version of his biography that's available. If it's something you'd like to look at, it might be a great week to look at it. It's on desiringgod.org. And you can find that biography by searching, You Will Be Eaten by Cannibals. And I'll give you a short abbreviated version of that story this morning. In 1606, there was a chain of islands that was discovered by the explorer Ferdinand of Spain. And you can see where these islands were. Uh, They were right off the coast of Australia. In 1773, a captain by the name of James Cook came to the islands, and he was the first to officially give them the name. And the name that he gave them were the New Hebrides Islands. And they were named for the similar appearance to an island grouping that was off the coast of Scotland that was called the Hebrides Islands. And in 1980, the New Hebrides Islands chain gained its independence from Britain and France and was finally named, as you see on the screen there, Vanuatu. And this is an island chain that stretches for about 450 miles, and today its population is around 190,000 people. And at the time of its discovery, as in many locations that are newly discovered, there was no Christian influence on the island. And in 1839, two missionaries from the London Missionary Society, John Williams and James Harris, went on a mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the inhabitants who lived on the Vanuatu Islands. On November 20th of 1839, the men who landed, uh, landed on a small sub-island called Aramanga, which was part of Vanuatu, within 20 minutes of their arrival, they were killed and eaten by the cannibals who lived on the islands. John Patton would later write in his journal, quote, Thus the new Hebrides were baptized in the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. End quote. This is a picture of John G. Patton uh, with a little arrow pointing to the Vanuatu Islands. He's got a nice beard. John G. Patton was born near Dumfries, Scotland, in May of 1924. He sailed with his wife Mary to the New Hebrides, to Vanuatu, on April 16th of 1858. He was 33 years old at the time that he sailed there. 33 The island that Patton and his his wife would first minister on was known as Tana. And they arrived at Tana on November 5th of 1858 after a seven-month journey to the island. Imagine seven months just to get to the location that the Lord was calling you to do ministry. Within six months upon their arrival, 
both his wife and their newborn son died of fever within six months of arrival. Now, most men, when faced with something so difficult, would immediately say, this must not be what the Lord is calling me to, and they'd pack up their bags and they'd leave. But not John Patton. He served alone for the next four years under the threat of constant danger on the island from people that wanted to kill him, to take his life, until finally he was driven off the island in February of 1862. When he returned home, he did mobilization work for future missions uh, that were going to go to the Vanuatu Islands. And during this time, he met his second wife, Margaret, who he married in 1864. And together, in 1866, John and Margaret returned to the Vanuatu Islands to a smaller island, 14 miles long. That's it, just 14 miles from one end to the other. And it was called Aniwa. And the conditions on the island of Niwa were incredibly dangerous, to say the least. The natives were cannibals. And they occasionally would eat the flesh of their vanquished enemies. They would practice infanticide and widow sacrifice. And widow sacrifice is, is uh, thankfully we don't practice this in the United States, but when a husband dies, the wife is also um, sacrificed in order to serve her husband in the next world. And that was practiced on this island. Patton quoted in his journal of the island and its conditions, he said this, quote, their worship was entirely a service of fear, its aim being to alleviate this evil spirit or to prevent calamity or to secure revenge. They deified their chiefs so that almost every village or tribe had its own sacred man. They exercised extraordinary influence for evil, these villages or tribal priests were believed to have the disposal of life and death through their sacred ceremonies. They worshipped spirits of departed ancestors and heroes through material idols of wood and stone. They feared the spirits and sought their aid, especially seeking to alleviate those who presided over war and famine, uh, war and peace, famine and plenty, health and sickness, destruction and prosperity, life and death. Their whole worship was one of slavish fear. And so far as I ever could learn, they had no idea of God's mercy or his grace. End quote. From time to time, Patton's heart, while he was on the island ministering, wavered. Where do you begin with a people who are so desperately lost? Where do you even start? And he found his confidence in the power of the gospel knowing that it was God's word that had the power to transform hearts and to change minds. He learned the language of the Aniwa people. He created a written form of it. Along with his wife, Margaret, they built orphanages. Margaret taught classes for women and children. Together they trained teachers, translated, printed, expounded the scriptures, ministered to the sick and dying on the island, gave medicine to those who, need, who needed it. They made tools and they taught the people how to use them. They held worship services every Sunday. And after the worship services, when people would come to know Jesus, they would then train them in how to go into the villages and tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. So their own people were coming to them, telling them of this extraordinary grace and mercy that's found through a relationship with the Father. In just 15 years of ministry, on the Aniwa Islands, 
almost the entire island, almost the entire island converted to Christianity. Later, Patton wrote in his journal, quote, I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet, end quote. And friends, at 73 years old, Patton was still bouncing around the islands, from island to island throughout Vanuatu. He even translated an entire New Testament in the Aniwa language for his people. And up until the very point of his death, he was translating hymns and catechisms and even a dictionary for the people on Aniwa. John and Margaret labored together on the Vanuatu Islands for 41 years until Margaret died in 1905 when John was 81 years old. John died two years later in 1907 in Australia. And still to this day, 85% of the population on Aniwa Islands identifies as Christian. 85%. Faced with the danger of being killed, being driven off the island, losing his first wife and his infant to fever, faced with potentially being eaten by cannibals, Patton rose to the call of God on his life. And God produced incredible fruit through his life and his ministry on this island and through those who would follow in his footsteps. And this week, as we gather specifically this morning, as we prepare for our missions conference this week, perhaps we sit here this morning and we battle and we wrestle with this question, why? Why? What would cause a man to lay down his own life for the sake of strangers? What leads a person to conquer and to overcome fear of the unknown? To go to unreached people groups that may be hostile towards any outside influence. What compels a person to continue on when they're met with personal hardship and violent animosity? And friends, I believe the answers to those questions are found in our text this morning. When we go to the book of Matthew and we open our Bibles this morning to Matthew 28, if you have them, I'd encourage you to open to that particular portion of Scripture now, Matthew chapter 28, we're going to be in verses 18 to 20, and I, I truly believe the answer to the question of why is found in our text this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And before we jump into our text, let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we come to your word as we do every week as a fellowship of believers, like-minded people, Father, that you have called out of darkness and placed under the authority of your church and the headship of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the power of your word. We know it's transformative. Lord, we know that it can motivate, that it can inspire, that it can encourage, and that it changes hearts and minds. And as we come together this week and we celebrate the work that you're doing all over this world and we recognize it and and we're excited by it, we pray, Lord, that your word would motivate our hearts. Lord, we pray that there may be one, two, three, four, multiple people from within our congregation that you guide and direct towards future ministry endeavors, perhaps even on missions fields. Lord, maybe here but Lord, maybe also far away, 
Father, we know that your word is powerful. We pray that through our study this morning, it would cause us to grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for all of the people that you bring into our lives, no matter where you might send us. We wait with anticipation for your spirit to move through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, typically, we don't come to a book and, and begin at the end of the book. It's something a little different that we're doing today. Uh, so we want to set up where are we at, what's going on in the book of Matthew to this point. And it's interesting, the whole theme of the book of Matthew is actually echoed in the Old Testament. Matthew is an exposition of this verse in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This line right here, friends. Behold your king. That is the book of Matthew. Beginning to end. He's coming to you. He is with you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we go through this book in each chapter in Matthew, beginning with chapter 1 to the very end, is an exposition of the greatness of the King of Israel, the Savior of the world. And as we come to the end of the book, in the last two chapters of the book, the question that is being addressed as we open chapter 28 is, how will the King triumph? How will He triumph? Throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, we've seen him triumph over nature. We've seen that he's triumphed over physical infirmities. He's triumphed over physical needs such as hunger and thirst. He's triumphed over human emotions of fear, anxiety, and doubt. He's triumphed over the angelic round showing power over the spiritual beings. He's overwhelmingly conquered sin and its consequence, death. And now... In Matthew 28, the final chapter, how will King Jesus continue to triumph after he ascends into heaven? And we know, friends, that indeed he did intend to continue to triumph. There's evidence of this earlier in the gospel in Matthew chapter 16. The Lord intended to triumph even after he rose from the dead. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus will continue to reign triumphantly as he builds his church here on earth. And so our question today, maybe, friends, is how is he going to do that? How's that going to happen? How will Jesus accomplish his intended purposes and plans for his church? And the answer to that question becomes clear as we break down our text this morning. Look at 
verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, we call this passage of Scripture, this particular part of Scripture, the Great Commission. And at the very beginning in verse 18, the Great Commission begins with the statement of both presence and authority. Jesus has conquered death. And he's reappeared physically, not only to his disciples, but also to the world. In their presence and by his authority, he's now instructing them. And he's instructing us, church, on exactly how he intends to triumphantly build his church. That's what we're celebrating today. The triumphant building. This whole week, friends, is is a celebration of the triumphant building of God's church throughout the world. And it should excite us. It should motivate us. The testimony from the Beeries this morning, uh, Emmanuel's prayer, had me like a pregame speech getting up here today, friends. <laughs> I was ready to rock. This is great. I can't wait for this. This is going to be a wonderful week. Hearing what the Lord is doing, how he's triumphantly building his church all over the world. And in their presence, in the presence of his disciples and, and by his authority, He's doing this. And notice that he uses the word all here. All authority has been given to me. Jesus' authority extends through the heavens, but also across every point of access on the earth. We alluded to this last week in our study of John. And Jesus continues this reality that he has been given all authority. We see it in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so not only do we find that Jesus' authority extends through heavens and the earth, but we also recognize that His authority has been granted and given to Him by God the Father. As He says in the text, all authority has been given to Me. Again, in John chapter 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given not some things, not a few things, He's given all things into His hands. And further, we know that he has this absolute, perfect, and complete authority by what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his, the word of his power. And so we find that this one, and those are all very powerful statements in regards to Jesus' authority, but I have a favorite. I have a favorite verse in all of Scripture that refers to Jesus' authority. And we've read it here before, but I think it's so powerful, we need to read it again. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 20. What a beautiful summation of the power and authority of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, 
the church which he is triumphantly building. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in Matthew 28, he is speaking on the basis of his complete and his absolute authority. And his command is clear. There is no confusion on how the king intends to reign over his kingdom. The king will reign through the building of his church, the giving of the Spirit to work in and through the lives of his disciples. That is how the king is reigning today. And look back at our text in Matthew 28, the beginning of verse 19. This is his instruction. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The prerogative here, friends, is to go. Right? And, and so it's here and it's intended to be here just because we know that we are going to go. We all go somewhere. Most of us go somewhere every day. And so we have this verb go here. The disciples are being sent by Jesus. They're going by his authority. We go by his authority. But friends, it's interesting, though this verb is placed here, it's not the primary verb in this sentence here. It's, it's not necessarily just about the going. It's about what we are to be doing as we go and when we get to the places that Jesus is taking us. The one who has all authority is sending us. We're supposed to go. And when we get there, what are we supposed to be doing? What has he called us to do? Make disciples. Make disciples. The verb that is given the priority here, the one that has the greater point of emphasis, is the verb that defines what we're to be doing as we go. Church, we are to be in the business of disciple-making. But as we think about this, it occurs to me that something first must be true about our own lives if we are going to be used of Jesus to make disciples. We first must be a disciple. Friends, this is a farming community here in Lancaster County. As we sit here today, we know that sheep produce sheep. You don't get goats from sheep. And if you do, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? And so God is using his disciples to produce more disciples. We are the sheep of his pasture. And if we believe that Jesus is is calling us to do this in this text, and we absolutely believe that He is, then there is absolutely no limit to where He might send us. Some may end up on the Vanuatu Islands. Some might end up in West Asia. Some might end up in Thailand. Some might end up in all different parts of the world. Haiti. I'm not sure where God might be sending you. Maybe in your own backyard. It's probably your place of employment. Your neighbors, your community, where might it be? And following this initial commissioning to go and to make disciples, he doesn't leave us with just that. He gives us a pattern now through the rest of the Great Commission of how we are to be doing it. 
So yes, we're to go. Yes, we're to be making disciples. But it doesn't end there. Through the rest of the Great Commission, Jesus is now going to teach us how disciples are made. How are disciples made? And there are three parts to this pattern beginning in the second half of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The first pattern for disciple-making in our text this morning is baptizing. Look down at verse 28, the second half, or chapter 28, the second half of verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, one of the first distinguishable marks of a true disciple is that they have been baptized. And baptism begins with a spiritual reality that is confirmed with a physical affirmation. I'm going to say that again. Baptism begins with a spiritual reality. It's something that God does. He takes us out of the darkness of the world and he baptizes us into the church. That's a spiritual reality that's then confirmed through water as a physical affirmation of that reality. There is one baptism spiritually at the moment of salvation. Galatians 3 verse 7, Paul describes this as being baptized into Christ who is the head of the church. And the pattern is established throughout the rest of the Old Testament, or New Testament. In the early church, the established pattern is to repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. And so why do we practice physical baptism by water? We confirm the spiritual reality that has happened in our lives by the evidence of our obedience in believers' baptism by water. We're baptized because Jesus has told us to be and because he himself was. We follow in his example. In Matthew chapter 3, the king, he's on earth. He's coronated by his father through this baptism. His ministry is confirmed. It's a beautiful account. And in the account in Matthew chapter 3, you see all three persons of the Trinity present. Jesus the Son is there being baptized. The Spirit is descending as a dove upon Him. And the heavens opened up and God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And and it's amazing, church, just as all persons of the Trinity are present at Jesus' baptism, so too today do we baptize. And in our text this morning, when we baptize, we're supposed to do it in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit. And why? Well, that's one reason. Because they were all there when Jesus was baptized. So we baptize today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All three parts of the Trinity involved in our baptism. And friends, all three parts are involved in our salvation. We saw this last week. The Spirit regenerates. God draws. Jesus saves. The Spirit regenerates us. God draws us. Jesus saves us. And so this first pattern to follow in disciple making is baptism. If you are here today and you haven't been uh, baptized or experienced a believer's baptism, the time may be soon, friends. Jesus is calling you to that. It's something that we should do. And at our next Family Life Hour, I would encourage you to pursue that. There will be opportunities available for you to pursue that 
at that time. There's a second pattern that's uncovered here as well, and it's in verse 20 of our text. If you look at verse 20, the second pattern for disciple-making. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, it occurred to me, friends, I thought about this week, uh, this, this idea of teaching. Teaching begins with the mind. Discipleship, when we think about discipleship and making disciples, we often think about teaching some kind of physical thing, like how we could be better at, at talking to people, or how we might be better at praying, or how we might be better at serving. But really, the the key idea in discipleship, church, is that we would be teaching people how to think rightly. Discipleship is about right thinking, biblical thinking. Because we know this, friends, proper behaviors and attitudes always follow proper thinking. A huge part of discipleship following baptism is teaching disciples to think biblically. To think rightly. Friends, this is a task for the church today. What a difficult task in the world that we live in with so many different things out there that influence our thinking and our minds that are countercultural to biblical truth. And we have a great task in this area, in the church. And the problem is, I think a lot of times we spend our time focusing on the behaviors without correcting the misguided thinking that's leading to the behaviors. So when I sit in my own home, I give you an example of your pastor's shortcomings in this area. When I sit in my own home and I hear a ruckus going on in the basement, and I know it's not good, and I know I'm going to go down the steps and witness some kind of criminal activity going on, all right? I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be happening because I can hear it upstairs. The first thing that I want to do is correct the behavior, but I'm trying to train my mind and remind myself that there is something misguided in the thinking of my children that causes them to behave in that manner. And, And I have found the most fruitful times of discipline in my home have come when I'm helping them think through the why. why. Why did you do that? Why did you behave that way? What was it in your mind that made you feel that way? Because they'll answer questions that, friends, will lead us and guide us right into places of biblical truth where we, they, we can then help guide and direct them. And we expect certain behaviors but neglect to realize that the behaviors we're getting are often a result of misguided teaching. So perhaps the question we would sit here and ask is, well, what should we teach? What should we be teaching? And isn't it amazing? I love the Word of God. Jesus tells us exactly what we're to be teaching. We look down at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So what did Jesus command? And again, the friends, the Word of God just clearly unpacks and unfolds this question. What undergirds, what guides, what helps facilitate the Great Commission is the Great Commandment, friends. What are we to teach? What are we to instruct? What are we to command our children? How are we to train them to think properly? Teach them the Great Command. Teacher, which is the Great Commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, 
and with all of your mind. This is the great and first command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What are we to be teaching disciples? We say it here a lot, friends, to grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. What is the church to be doing? Growing in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other. Friends, this is the vision. This is the vision, and it's the reason we say it a lot here, that we would see the Lord rescuing people from sin and death and disciples of Jesus growing in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other because that is the fulfillment of both the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment undergirds, it guides, it helps define the process of disciple-making built within the Great Commission. Friends, this training happens within the body and within the discipling ministries that we have here. Children's ministries, Pier 56, Iwana, Youth Ministry, Oasis, ABFs, home groups, those coffee shop interactions that we have in the community, VBS, women's and men's Bible studies. All of these are tools that the Lord can use to help train our minds to think rightly, to think biblically. But the thrust of the training focuses on teaching right thinking, not simply behavior modification. Author Ted Tripp says this, quote, Give your children big truths they will grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. End quote. I'll say that again. Quote, Give your children big truths they will grow into rather than light explanations they will grow out of. End quote. I would add that we could put the words adult in there as well. We all, church, we all need to hear the gigantic, often incomprehensible truths of Scripture. We should all be wrestling from time to time with parts of our faith because God is huge. We can't put Him in a box. We cannot fully comprehend and understand Him. And Church, as a, as a body of Christ, we're growing best together as we're wrestling with these gigantic truths that we find in Scripture and we're confronted with them over and over and over again. The Spirit uses that to help us grow. And so we have baptism as a pattern of discipleship. We have teaching as a pattern of discipleship. But there's one more here in our text, one that's often overlooked. And it's here at the end of, of verse 20. The end of verse 20 in Matthew 28, the third pattern for disciple-making. And behold, 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 I am with you always to the end of the age. Friend, this word can also be understood as reminding, beholding. It's an important part of disciple-making. And it's not new to the Great Commission. This is not new to the Great Commission, this idea to behold or to remember. In fact, this very part of disciple-making is built within the history of Israel and tied to the law that was given to the people. Because if you remember, back in the book of De Deuteronomy, what were they to do with the law? 
They were to put it on the walls of their house. They were to wear it as symbols on their fingers and, and, and recognize as, as signs on their foreheads. And they would put, when the Lord would do something great amongst the people, they would build a memorial or put Ebenezer stones. And, and they would do all of these different things to remember, to behold the power of the Lord and what He had done. And so, friends, indeed, beholding is this third pattern for disciple-making. It's important that we reflect and we remember. And, and friends, as we get older, as we grow old and we raise our children and, and we live our lives that God has called us to wherever He takes us, there's a testimony of His faithfulness that follows that, that we would be remiss not to point our children back to every once in a while and say, look at what God has done. Look at his great faithfulness over our lives. Somebody asked me a question just the other day that reminded me of this in my own life. They said, where were you last year at this time? Yeah, the Lord has done an amazing work in one year. And what an Ebenezer stone to put up and say, look at what God has done. And there's just gigantic question that lingers at the very end here of the Great Commission, I, I think it's a, it's a question that actually connects the beginning of the commission to the end, doesn't it? Because the, the beginning of the commission begins with the statement of Jesus' presence and His authority. And the end of the Great Commission is an authoritative statement from Jesus regarding His constant presence. Isn't that amazing? What does he say here? And Behold, I am always with you, with you always, to the end of the age. Yes. Will Jesus always be with us? Yes. Absolutely. He's always with us to the end of the age. And there's this process over and over again, friends, of disciple making. And, and we, all, we often ask this question at the end of our text, and I don't have it up here this morning, but I think it relates. How should our lives look in light of these realities? As we go this week, as we go today, how should our lives look? And you know, it occurs to me that these three patterns that are given, baptism, teaching, and beholding, these are very countercultural patterns. So our lives should look very different. If you think about what baptism is, baptism is, coming, is submitting to the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so there's two huge words in that sentence. Submission and authority. And think about the way our culture responds to both of those words today. Wow. Baptism is countercultural, friends. It's countercultural. We think about teaching. Teaching requires a physical relationship. Learning, I'm not saying learning, right? We can learn abroad, do all these different things. I'm saying teaching. There's something about teaching that makes it so much more impactful, so much more real when we know the person who's teaching us. There's a connection point. And so this idea of physical relationships, friends, is countercultural in a world that's growing further and further apart through social network, being online, and not being physically present. These are countercultural principles. And finally, beholding. Friends, what does beholding do? It reminds us of the glory of God and the faithfulness of His testimony in our lives. It gives us cause to not have fear, to not have anxiety, to not have worry. 
And we live in a culture that's driven by all three, fear, anxiety, and worry. And so friends, as we go today and we leave this place, the question of how should our lives look in light of these realities is they should look different from the lives of those that do not hold them. Our lives should look countercultural as we go and we seek to make disciples and to do the work of the Lord. As we get ready to close this morning, I believe our team is going to come. No, maybe. Yes. Mr. Hurst is going to come and lead us in a closing hymn.